There she is. Yes, there she is. And? You made a promise. To return the Stark girls to their mother, who is now dead. To keep them safe. Well, Arya Stark hasn't been seen since her father was killed. What do you think she is? My money's undead. There's a certain safety in death, wouldn't you say? And Sansa Stark is now Sansa Lannister. It's a complication. Complication? Does not release you from the vow. What do you want me to do? Kidnap my sister-in-law and, and take her where? Where will she be safer than here? Me in the eye and tell me that you think she'll be safe in King's Landing. Are you sure we're not related? Ever since I've returned, every Lannister I've seen has been a miserable pain in my arse. Maybe you're a Lannister too. You've got the hair for it, not the looks. Hello and welcome back to Sound Insights Game of Thrones podcast. This week we'll be talking about the season four premiere, Two Swords, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by D.B. Weiss. And joining us from t Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan from the AV Club, from Not Just TV McGee, from many, many things, uh, Ryan McGee will be joining us. So we'll be right back with that after this. Sound Inside Game of Thrones podcast, uh, talking about the premiere. It's uh, this is Kate Kulzik, TV editor of Sound Inside, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, uh, editor in chief Ricky D. Ricky, how's it going? Hello, Kate. Um, I'm okay. Once again, I'm sick. I'm always sick when it comes to the uh, season premieres of big shows, and then I come on a podcast, and I don't know. I'm not feeling it right now, but I, I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping. Give me a few minutes, and I'll be ready. <laughs> well, and joining us this time, we're very excited to welcome back uh, Ryan McGee from Everywhere. I don't know if it's everywhere, but I appreciate the sentiment all the same. <laughs> but at the very least, like uh, five podcasts that I can think of, uh, if you're still doing them all. Five podcasts, four Instagram accounts, three Pinterest handles, and a partridge in a pear tree. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So, uh, as we always say on the Sound, uh, Sound of Sight Game of Thrones podcast, we're going to keep this show specific. I have read the books. Ricky has not. Ryan, what is your relationship with the books? I tried to read the first book before the first season, and I decided I wanted to keep this uh, entirely about the show. And I think we will get into this podcast. I think it's an increasingly wise decision on my part. Yeah, so we will, you know, when we get to events that are, or situations or significant moments from the books, we will discuss them on, on the podcast, and I'm sure I will have things to relay about the relationship of how something is portrayed in the book versus in the TV show. But uh, we're not going to do any spoilers, so no worry. No worries about that. No fear about that. Ryan, let's dive in here with the season premiere. What did you think of Two Swords and uh, in relation to this episode by itself, but also the show as a whole? I think you know, my relationship with Game of Thrones is that I think around the midpoint of season three, the show found its sort of its its maximum operating level. 
Like I think it took the disparate elements in the first couple of seasons and the strengths and the weaknesses and honed them to the point where the weaknesses were almost not there or the limitations at least they had overcome as much as they possibly could, which is to say that I think Game of Thrones is generally a very good show that has some occasionally some exceptional scenes and or storylines. But for me, I always find that I come away from an episode thinking that I've seen one chunk of a larger whole rather than a crafted episode that's supposed to stand on its own. And my personal preference in watching television, again, my personal preference is that I like to see these things that work on both levels. Game of Thrones rarely works on both levels for me personally. So what I found most interesting about Two Swords is that the things I like about the show vary from season to season, uh, plotline to plotline, like things that were bothering, characters that bothered the heck out of me in season three are now my favorites. And some things that were really interesting to me have kind of faded away. And so I like that push-pull because there's always more good than bad in the show for me. But what that good is and what that bad is is a constantly shifting entity. Ricky, what did you think? Of the actual premiere? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't think it's necessarily the most explosive season opener, but I do love the way it's bookended around two blades belonging to the Starks, or at least once belonging to the Starks beginning on the death of ice and then ending on the resurrection of Nito. So like, of course the title refers to the pair of blades that uh, Tywin has forged from Ned Stark's enormous like steel sword. Right. And I just love the way it opens up on that sequence. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's Ned Stark's most trusted weapon. Is it not also the sword that took his head? You know what? I want to say it is. Uh, and I should really, as a book person, I should know that, but it's been so long since yeah. I refreshed that season one or that first book. I, I want to say it is, though. I, I think it is. And I just love how it's melted down into two smaller, more practical blades and how one is given to Jamie Lannister, who is now missing his, like, fighting hand. And so, like, the whole mythology of the actual steel sword and how it's nearly indestructible, like, that to me was a great way to grab my attention. And I love how it's a how it's been in the family, like in the Stark family for like, I think four centuries, if I'm not mistaken. And I also like the fact that we open up on Tywin, like Charles Dance is one of the best actors on the, on, on the, on the series. And so it, for me personally, it's like, if I had to pick like one of three people to open up on, uh, he would have been on that list. Right. So I really do like the, op- uh, the opening, but I also like the, 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 the closing scene, like the final scene, because we get the final scene, which, Arya Stark, who's also like one of my favorite characters, regains possession of Needle once more. And I guess we can talk about that specific scene later on in the podcast because it was a fantastic scene. And so that's what I really liked about this about the episode. It was it was more to do with the structure. But there's um, there's a few things I didn't like. But you know, I'm so glad to be back on the Game of Thrones podcast because we just finished our Walking Dead podcast, and I've been mostly negative on the Walking Dead podcast, and I'm very rarely negative on the Game of Thrones podcast. I think the only thing I complained about in back in season three was uh, the character Sansa, and I have a few things to say about her once again today. But um, yeah, I really like this episode. Not the best, but um, enough to get me you know, excited for the next. Now, Ryan, the uh, the different things that Ricky was mentioning, which of those uh, are in your things that are you're really enjoying about this episode uh, or things that have you excited for the season and which of those are maybe the ones you're less thrilled with? Yeah, so I would actually point to two things that were not mentioned just then as my sort of highlights here. And they were highlights for me in season one, and that would be uh, Daenerys and Jon Snow. And I think where I'm coming at uh, Game of Thrones right now, where I'm trying to find my toehold, as a non-reader is, you know, where are we going with this story? Because as we are 
I feel like we're in, and Kate, you would have a better sense of this, like the Empire Strikes Back phase of the Song of Fire and Ice saga, like mm-hmm. that seven books or whatever it's going to be, seven seasons, yeah, and whatever it is. So we're in that phase where we're in the darkest part, and we're going to get darker and darker and darker. And the stuff at the end where we get that wide shot of um, Hound and Arya going into this decimated landscape. And for the first time, we kind of sort of see the, the, the sort of full effect of war. It's not the wildfire. It's not the, the King's Landing and the opulence of that. It's just the nitty-gritty type of stuff that's going on there. Um, I want to know where my threads of hope are. I, I understand that power inherently corrupts and the Iron Throne is something that we everyone strives for, but yet no one actually wants, and that there's a lot of really nice, innocent people or good people that are caught up in this particular struggle. So I want to know... Where's my hope? Where is where are we going beyond that? Like you know, power corrupts and and life sucks. And with Daenerys and Jon Snow, you've got two people who are, if not aspirational, at least you know, proactive. You know, the Jon Snow that confronts uh, the 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 Council at the Night's Watch. I'm like, where has this guy been the last couple of seasons? I want to hang out with this guy. This guy kind of knows what he's talking about. Uh, Daenerys sort of taking charge and um, being the master of her own fate. That stuff was all sort of exciting for me. That's a lot better than my dragons, my dragons, the season st- two stuff, which drove me up a freaking wall. Um, so as good as I like all the stuff in King's Landing, it's just this cesspool, but I get that it's a cesspool. So seeing Jamie kind of dragged down in this and Tywin lording over all this, they're all really good, but I need my, my hook. I need to know why I want to keep watching. It was interesting you mentioned The Walking Dead before. That's a show I just, I had to, I had to jump out of because it was so relentlessly bleak. And I could not get a toehold in that world. And it just felt like misery porn. And I, I don't think Game of Thrones is quite on that level. But there are times at which it tips to that a little bit too much. And that worries me a bit of, as a viewer. So if I see a thread of hope or at least an upward trajectory that someone's reaching for, rather than a Sansa Stark who's trying to waste away by not eating, that's something I'm going to gravitate towards at this point in the show. Yeah, and I think that's... Uh... Yeah, that's a very understandable uh, impulse with 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 the show, especially as it continues to darken. And uh, there's this it, this continuing trend we see it in this episode with cannibals on uh, our TV shows, and and that for me ties in with this darkness and everything. You know, like if it's more horrible and more painful and more horrifying, that means it's good, or at least it means it'll get viewers. There's been a trend of that in a lot of our uh, prestige dramas over the past couple of years, so it's something that I definitely appreciate and definitely look for when we get these moments of levity or or light or just uh, you know, characters that don't need to be that. And so when you have Arya in this episode, the, at the end of the episode, in that incredibly um, effective scene with her and and uh, Polliver, the I am at, at once rooting for her because she gets her revenge and at the same time i'm seeing you know i think the book ending the episode with ice and needle that that reminder of ned stark and what would he say if he saw Arya now and and even just of how stark going from this great amazing sturdy uh sword ice this this uh beacon of justice and and uh honor and respectability to a a thin tiny uh sharp and nimble but you know only effective in backstabbing basically kind of blade needle 
uh, at the end of the episode. I mean, it, it, this, the imagery is very effective and it's hard to, to just watch Arya become more and more like the people that are on her list, more and more like the Hound, more and more like Polliver, when I want her to still be that, uh, that person that she was at the start of the series. Yeah, I mean, you want to think about another sort of nimble blade in this episode, um, Prince Oberyn's dagger that he mm -hmm. uses as sort of a way to sort of in close quarters. You know, it doesn't matter what the old ways are. And ice is very much of the old ways. And I will straight up confess that I did not know the name of that sword before I had to do some research for this podcast. <laughs> so I did not sound like a complete idiot on here. Um, I thought it was actually Rob Stark's sword and the way that it was shot. I thought, oh, they're pulling out of the dire wolf. So that's where I am. So really take everything I'm saying with a silo of salt. But the sort of the nimbleness, the ways in which the old guard are falling away and the, way, and the ways the traditions are being used and abused and ignored by later generations is something that I find very interesting within the show and the ways in which the old guard find themselves sort of caught off guard, as it were, by people who don't play by the rules but still ascend anyway is one of the sort of the great motifs of this show. That's interesting to me. Ricky, what was your uh, relationship with that that with ice in that first scene? Because for me, when I read the books and also here, but even more when I read the books, when when Tywin melts down ice it was an effect it was an affecting moment for me i got teary you know i got really affected by the notion of this last remnant of of ned being gone and that heritage was it was it as that as effective for you as it was for me or were you more in ryan's camp where you had to sort of remind yourself no i think uh i think that's why it works so wonderfully because i was right away thinking of Ned Stark, thinking of Ned Stark getting his head chopped off, which is why I think it is a sword that they use to chop off his head. They use his own sword. And so I wouldn't go so far as to say I had tears in my eyes, but, you know, I do care about the Stark family. And I thought that sequence was a lot more emotionally devastating than the scenes in which we get to watch Sansa mope around and not want to eat. But there's also one character in this episode, and I'm sorry, I don't know her name because it's the first time we see her, where, where I think she says something in the lines of, uh, um, like she's talking about the power of words and how you can't burn words, but, you know, and, and then comparing that to the actual sword, which is burnt at the beginning of the episode. And so I like the way thematically, like, again, in the structure of this episode, I like the way it all ties in, how every single scene ties into the next and the one before. Um, but for me personally, I think the best or most successful episodes of game of thrones are those episodes that focus on the fewest amount of characters and yeah. there's so many characters in the show and i thought that if they really want to have a better season opener because this was a good season opener but it wasn't great i think they could have eliminated a few characters like i love Tyrion, for example but he doesn't do much in this episode i mean where is a character that i once loved played by peter dinklage like um him, Sansa, there's a few characters they could have easily eliminated. And um, I think that's the problem with some of the episodes in Game of Thrones is like they focus too much on plot points and not so much on characterization sometimes. And I just personally prefer when we not only stick to like one or two locations, but we focus on fewer characters. So um, and also I just want to quickly agree, Kate, um, one of the reasons why I really like this episode, too, is because of the humor like, we do get a few scenes in which, you know, it's kind of funny. They throw in some dark humor here and there, especially with Jamie. And I love watching Brienne reappear once again. So um, there's a lot of things they do well. Well, well you know, Lady Olena reacting to Brienne of Tarth is my everything. So that was, that, 
that was really wonderful. And Brienne being sort of a stranger in a strange land. Um, her and Jamie was my favorite part of season three by almost a landslide. Uh, the two of them. And now sort of Han, Hound and Arya have taken over that sort of odd couple wandering through Westeros coupling together. And I hope that the show never loses that type of pairing because the one advantage of having 470,000 characters in a show, most of which who are bearded 50-year-old dudes, uh, is that you could pair them up in interesting ways in an almost infinite amount of combinations. And those combinations can be somewhat successful. And uh, Weiss and Benioff have the privilege of having the books in some ways to know what works and what doesn't work, not only as a sort of, you know, a, a roadmap for them to go, but also a ways to pivot off. And that's why I said before at the beginning of the podcast, I think it's an interesting time to be a non-book reader. And I think for two reasons, one of which is that, and Kate, you can speak to this way more than the two of us, like, you know, the deviations are only going to become worse, or rather, I think worse is the right word here. They're going to deviate from the books in some ways because they sort of have to. Um, but also, those deviations are probably going to be better for the show rather than being adhering to the book. So if you don't have those predilections and those ideas of what's coming, that's probably only a good thing for me. On top of that, as great as The Red Wedding was for everybody last year, the fact that I kept hearing about it for nine weeks before it started, the fact that I heard about Blackwater for nine weeks, it just it, it's in that it's in the DNA there, and I just feel like if we were going to get like a good wife situation without talking about the good wife, that sort of gobsmack surprise is why I love television. And I want to have more of those sort of moments going forward, and I think Weiss and Benioff have earned the fact that they have not only, you know, to say they've just done a good show because the source material is good, I think, does them a disservice. Because, they, you know, it, it's a very hard thing to think about opening the show on the forging of those two swords. That is as lyrical as the show has ever gotten. And even though I didn't understand exactly that was Ned's sword and that Ned's sword and, that, and it was ice and it cut off his head, I understood the import as a casual fan. The fact that it can get the hardcore fans and the casual fans and communicate on both levels is a huge success for the show and something that I think they are very well equipped to do going forward, even as the books, quote-unquote, get worse. I don't have that worry. I haven't read the third, fourth, fourth bit of the book. I haven't read the first three books. So the fact that I have, you know, no relationship to those means that I can come to what's supposedly the lesser material fresh and I can come to it optimistic. Cause I also feel like this, the, the, the quality of the material in the books has nothing to do with the quality of the show. I think it's important to bracket that off and give Weiss and Benioff as much credit as possible for creating a television show not just an adaptation of the books. Well, and that's that's something I'll absolutely agree with because it is a very hard thing to do to adapt a series of books, to adapt a, a, a movie, to adapt another form of storytelling to be a TV show because it is such a specific type of thing. And and with this show, they've you have for the most part issued the whole traditional each episode is its own entity and it's part of a larger entity format of, of TV in favor of part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of a season long movie. But that being said, these they do a wonderful job ad adapting these books and taking liberties where it is helpful, uh, con contracting some characters, and uh, then then also at certain times lifting some exchanges directly out of the books because they're really good. You know, there are times where you hear a line, it's just it really sticks in your memory, 
And at least for me as a book reader, I'm going to notice that stuff more. But still, where it's like, oh, yeah, that was a direct lift from the book because, you know, in the book, that line really works. And in the movie, the show, they found a way to make it really effective as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. Just look at the number of shows on TV right now that are adaptations of something. And uh, a lot of them aren't working that well uh, and certainly aren't anywhere near as inventive do, as this do, one is. Do any of those shows rhyme with Munder the Moam? <laughs> maybe. Maybe <laughs> they do. Um, and when we talk about David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, we should also mention that this is the first episode directed by D.B. Weiss. How did you guys think he did? I thought he did a pretty good job. I thought he did a fantastic job, and uh, I, that's why I especially like the last scene. Um, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Hound and Arya, and I think they are they, they represent the most twisted friendship since pr probably Brienne and Jamie. I love their buddy cop sort of like adventure. Um, I, I mean, the, it's not just the fact that he knows how to direct action sequences and the uh, the sword slash brawl within the bar is just nicely photographed, like the camera angles and whatnot. But it's also just the way he knows how to also direct actors, you know, because this is his first ep uh, episode directing. This is like a big, huge TV show. This is a big deal. They put in a lot of money. They have a big cast, a big crew. And I thought he did a fantastic job. Um, so I was actually kind of surprised when I actually read that it was the first time he directed because it doesn't look like a first time director. Uh, but I just want to go back on what you said about adapting the source material, Kate. Um, you said that it's not easy to adapt the source material and it is and it isn't. To some degree, it is a lot easier to, to adapt source material, especially if it's your own source material because you've already got the groundwork laid out for you and you can also like take away what you might have regretted and add in things that you didn't think of say, when you were actually initially writing, like, the books way back when. And, like, I don't know, like, I, I feel like, like, I feel like the hardest thing for them to do is just to eliminate characters because there's too many people to put into, like, one TV show when you only get 10 episodes per season. But um, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's more difficult than, say, scripting a whole entirely fresh news, uh, new show that doesn't come from, you know, a book or a comic book or whatever. Uh, but, like, the, the trick is, is to not try to please the fans right and we see this all the time and it never works and i'm going to go back to the walking dead one more time where there's so many times in the walking dead where they need to specifically put in lines of dialogue or a specific image or something because it's in the book and they have to like respect the iconography and you know they want to please the fans and it just doesn't work we saw a prime example of that in the season finale of the walking dead and it had even the fanboys like were, were angry at it right and so the thing is, it's like I haven't read the books, uh, but I I would assume they're doing a really good job. I'm assuming that they're they are taking the most interesting characters because there's very few characters in this series that I dislike. I mean, almost every single character. Like, when I say like, I don't mean I like the character. Like, I would want to hang out with them in real life, but I like watching these characters on the big on the small screen. And so I don't know. Um, I think that's why the show works for me because I'm a big fan of. TV shows and movies that have a lot of characters, and especially if these characters are so completely different from one another, and I find them incredibly interesting. And that's why I think I'm a huge fan of Game of Thrones, like, just overall. Well, I, I got to step in there and say one other thing about uh, the difficulty of adapting something that's pre-existing. And when you bring up The Walking Dead, that's a perfect example of why it actually, for me, is incredibly difficult to do it. Because how many times have we talked about on The Walking Dead podcast the, that we really feel like the show needs a significant change. It's, it's in a rut. They keep doing the same plot lines. They keep doing the same stories 
over and over again the same themes and that's because they're lifting it out of the book and they are limited in what they can do because there are characters they can't kill because they're still alive in the books they don't feel like they can there are storylines they feel like they have to do because they have to they are adapting this book when you are beholden to other source material it limits your options and sometimes that is makes for better storytelling but sometimes it, it shackles you to characters and storylines and uh, arcs that are not working so that would be my thought on that. Ryan, what do, what do you think about that? Well, have you guys in your Walking Dead podcast talked about the Telltale game, uh, Walking Dead? Uh, briefly. The, the okay. game is fantastic. It's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. I, I played that in a weekend, and I was I, I, I can never do it again because I'm so horrified by all the choices that I made. And every <laughs> single time I made a choice, I'm like, this is going to end terribly. And then it did. Um, but there are ways in which you could, you know, to the question of is this a good adaptation of the book, I my answer is I'm not trying to be a jerk about it because I don't mean this to you specifically, but like, who cares? Like, is it is it a good television show? And I think that's why I tried to make the, the breaks from the book and I, why I'm glad I am not a book reader, not because I don't think the books are worth reading. And I think when the show is over, I'm going to go and read them all. So I'd be very interested to see sort of what the differences are and how that exists as a is a series of books, but to me, the two have almost nothing to do with each other. I would liken this to say Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or any other type of thing that you want a beloved franchise that people freak out about. When you go into the comic book realm, then it becomes about, oh, what, which Avengers storyline are you going to tell? Which X-Men storyline are you going to tell? And therefore, you've got, it's not as easy as sort of like which story, you know, which of the, what's the canon? Because the canon is so fluid when it comes to those particular types of comics. So, I think you're right in some ways that they have a source material that they can lean on when they need to for guidance. They're not making up everything completely. But on the other hand, maybe it's more difficult because they're so, there's, so, there's so much stuff entrenched in there already in the minds of fans. On the other hand, Kate, I mean, maybe you can speak to this too. I remember very differently season one versus season four. Whereas when season one started, this was not the juggernaut it is now. It's not the, the sort of the guaranteed hit. And I think this was the most watched episode on hbo since the end of the sopranos so like this is the most watched by far this was not a a gonna be a ratings hit at all so any sort of you know negativity that was towards it and i had some negativity about the first season the first six episodes that were released for uh critical release um was attacked as this thing of like how dare you take this away from us now i think it's such a comfortable thing we can have this these types of debates about is this good is it working is it working as a television show is it working as an adaptation we have these sort of spaces we can talk about it game of thrones may or may not run seven or eight seasons i think that's what i've read but it could run 15 at this point with these types of ratings i hope it doesn't because i want the show to be lean and mean and get to the point um so I think I lost my train of thought there, but you know. <laughs> didn't they just announce that they're going to actually make a movie? So it's only going to be like six or seven uh, seasons, and then they want to make like one gigantic like blockbuster film with like a. Is that when winter budget? finally comes? Is that when <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't know. That's what I heard. That trying to watch them uh, fit something storytelling into a movie when they've had the luxury of you know 10 episode 11 episode seasons uh, depending on which season you're looking at or, or how long each episode is but uh that that'll be interesting i wouldn't i would if i were them i wouldn't want to try have to try to go back to just you know one one or two hours it, it's just amazing in these episodes you get i mean you talk about the adaptations things i mean i kind of wish i was coming next week because george rr R. martin wrote the second episode of season four 
So, you know, what the differences are between the book and whatever happens in that particular episode, the same way that he wrote, he wrote Baylor and Blackwater. Am I right on that? He wrote one in season three, but I'm not sure which one. Yeah. Uh, he wrote Blackwater. I know that. Yeah. I think he, did he write Baylor as well, Kate? I believe he wrote Baylor. That, that sounds right. Uh... Yeah. So, but just in terms of the ways in which, again, where you get a second crack at it, that does not disparage the book in any way, shape or form. I would be intrigued. And he probably was somewhat delighted or interested to go into those things, I imagine. So, and I imagine whatever he does in the second episode will be somewhat different than what he did in the books. Because, again, different mediums, uh, different things you can pull off and things that are good and bad about both. So maybe he has to excise 50 uh, pages about a certain feast, but he can actually add in sort of a one or two visual images that tells as much detail on the screen as 500 words on the page. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing to, uh, to think about. Well, I always appreciate when when adaptations of written material find visual ways to tell the same information. The, one of the examples I always go to is in one of the later Harry Potter movies, that, that Harry and Hermione dance, which tells you X number of chapters of development for those characters and what their experience is like in about 30 seconds of visual. Uh, and so that, you know, whenever we can find moments like the opening of this episode to tell a yep. whole bunch of story with a visual and take advantage of what this medium is, that's what I, I always appreciate. And when we talk about adaptation, uh, I want to talk about our new character this week. We talk about, um, talked earlier about, or I should say, Ricky, you talked, mentioned earlier that you were, you felt like Tyrion could have been cut out of this because he didn't really have much to do. And where's, you know, where's the Tyrion that you enjoy? I feel like they needed Tyrion in this episode because they, they had to introduce Dorne. They had to remind viewers that Dorne was the thing that existed. <laughs> That's where, you know, uh, the, the, oh goodness, what is her name? The daughter. Was Cersei's daughter? Yeah. Yeah, I no idea. <laughs> Starts with an M. Yeah. That, that that that's where you know the 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 princess is off at, and that you know they wanted to introduce the Red Viper, uh, Prince Prince Oberyn, and 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 con- immediately connecting him with Tyrion and in their roles as second sons is effective. But for me, even more effective than than it was in the books is the delivery of the history of. House Martell and and Alia, how effective was that for you guys? And are how do you feel about these two new characters that we meet this week? Well, there's four new characters this week, and there's a recasting which had me totally confused. Oh we'll talk god, about that yeah. later. I had no idea what was going on. It was like, did I forget about a character? But anyways, Prince Martell. Okay, here's the thing about Prince Martell. From my understanding, he is one of the most entertaining characters from the books. The guy looks like Antonio Banderas, but not like Antonio Banderas from, like, Assassins or Desperado. Like, Antonio Banderas from, like, Shrek. Like, he's supposed to be, like, this badass and, like, this sex goddess. And I don't know. I'm not feeling it with this guy. I do like his nickname, the Red Viper. I'm not saying he's a bad actor, but I'm just questioning why they specifically cast this man to be in this role. Like, I don't know, Kate, you read the book. Do you think it's a good casting choice? Because he, he didn't really sell me on, like, the badass. Like, I liked his line delivery, and I liked the exchange between him and Tyrion, and I agree, that was a great scene, which featured Tyrion, but at the, at the end of the day, like, I don't know, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel it, I didn't buy it. Oh, I did in a big way, and as for the casting of the character for, for the book, I'm gonna go with what Ryan said earlier and say I don't really care. <laughs> I, I do, obviously, I'm a fan of the books. I'm glad to see a character that I enjoy in the books also be a character that so far I enjoy on the TV show, but 
regardless of his relationship with you know the the literary character of of Prince Oberyn, the the TV character we meet this week, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed all of his scenes. I thought he had an excellent presence. I thought he you know he he has a good rapport with the people that he, he speaks with as well as of course anybody who is with Peter Dinklage I tend to enjoy I enjoy his scenes but he feels like a threat and feels you know when, when he touches uh, Tyrion it it didn't feel like it was uh, strange and wrong and what the who the hell do you think you are this is Tyrion mm-hmm. you don't touch Tyrion because he had earned uh, in my eyes as a viewer he he had earned that status, you know, just, you know, the cool factor and the respect of the viewer to the point where I didn't immediately feel standoffish towards him for feel, for taking that liberty. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, his delivery was great. Like, he did a fine job. I'm just saying physically, the way he looks, he, like, before we're actually introduced to him, like, they do mention the prince. And I expected someone, I don't know, more dominating, bigger, like... I don't know. I just expected something completely, someone completely different physically. But I mean, you do really feel his hatred for the Lannisters because he blames, uh, I, I believe he blames Tywin for the rape and murder of his sister. And, uh, but what I don't understand is why would you invite him to the wedding? <laughs> like, why are they inviting this guy specifically to the wedding? Or it wasn't even him that was invited. It was his older brother, who's also a prince. But if there's bad blood between these families, like it's just like inviting problems in, into like the Lannister household. So that was really, really confusing. See, they've made peace. And if you don't invite and this is not something from the books, this is just, you know, basic m- Middle Ages kind of theory lo- logic. If you don't invite them to the wedding, that is an, an insult and a slight. And so theoretically, they, they're not going to send the second son who is the badass fighter. They're going to send the 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 actual prince you know the the head of the house and first son and all of that uh who is not military minded and that's just not the way they go which will lead to interesting things down the line ryan yeah. what did you think of the character here i would think that after the red wedding everyone in westeros should elope <laughs> that's mostly what i think um i would say that yeah i mean this is a guy who definitely has seen javier bardem in skyfall so definitely has some of those sort of, you know, traits there as well. Um, I think that the actor uh, Pedro Pascal works only because it only only upon my second or third viewing of the episode did I realize that he basically recites a Wikipedia page <laughs> for most of the episode to explain the backstory. But he's so entertaining and all the stuff that's going on is so mesmerizing that you don't realize he's just rattling off history between two people who very much know the history between two people. Um, we got a lot of this in season one when Tyrion's talking to Theon. is like, remember when we captured you after we beat your father in this war? And all that sort of stuff that goes on. Um, so I think he worked. I think him and his... I, it wasn't this... It was a, Alaria was his, his, his confidant, his sort of girlfriend, their pseudo SNME hangout buddies, whatever they are. Um... They they developed enough of a of a of a threat uh, to this particular one, and I think the reason they're invited not only is it, is it decorum, but the Lannisters. Very much this episode is about the Lannisters thinking they have won, that they are acting in a way as if the war is over, and only Jamie seems to realize that it's not actually over, and maybe Cersei realizes it, but she's a bit too drunk to realize it. Um, but Tywin, um, Joffrey, all of them, there's there's a haughtiness to what they're doing. 
Yeah, whenever someone gets comfortable in this show, whether it be a family, whether it be there, and I think that, you know, very much what the Red Red Wedding did was to, again, upending the old old norms. The, 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 the spaces in which you feel comfortable, those no longer exist. One brand, once brand gets pushed out that window, the old order fa- falls utterly along with it. And so... For the Lannisters, at least Tywin, Tywin feels as if he is untouchable, and therefore his family is untouchable, which can only mean in the world of Game of Thrones, this is me not knowing what's going to happen, that the Lannisters are extremely touchable and not just in the way that Prince Oberyn likes to touch people. So, <laughs> But it feels like the Lannisters are their own worst enemies because in this very first episode of the season, we get to see all the Lannisters bickering and arguing. And like they all, I mean, even to the point where Jamie and his sister are no longer getting along, like he's still in love with her and he still wants to sleep with her and she just doesn't want to have anything to do with him where she has that very cold reply where she says to him, you took too long. And I, I think that's, I mean, I haven't read the books, but I'm just going to assume that they are going to be their own worst enemies and the Lannisters will fall apart because they will continue to argue and bicker with, with, with each other. And I, I mean, I'm, if I had to speculate, I think that Jamie and, uh, Tyrion are eventually going to do something. I don't know. It's to sort of like help the Starks, like help Sansa, help Arya. Like there, I, I, I don't see those two guys helping the Lannisters in keeping the throne or winning the war. But I, I think Jamie still like has a good amount of loyalty to his dad and his family and, and his like, um, what is it? The King's landing. But uh, I just feel like that is why the Lannisters are going to fall apart. Something's changed. Everything's changed. You come back after all this time with no apologies in one hand and expect everything to be the same. What do you want me to apologize for? For leaving me. You think I wanted to be taken prisoner? I don't know what you wanted. You weren't here. You left me. Alone. Every day I was a prisoner. I plotted my escape. Every day. I murdered people so I could be here with you. You took too long. I... What are you saying? I'm saying you took too long. Yeah, I mean, he's disowned in this episode. Is that right, Kate? Man, that's something I read, but I wasn't, it wasn't particularly clear in the episode. I know that Tywin kind of dismisses him, but he's disowned from the family. Is that what's happening here? The, the it, it, that feels a little overdramatic. Um, and that's, I mean, I, that for Tywin, family, uh, and the name Lannister is everything. So I, he's not gonna throw that away. I don't think that, that's not anything official. Okay. That's, yeah, at least as far as I'm aware, unless I miss something huge, that's not anything official. No, no okay. but Jamie did say that he felt like he was disowned or he was disowned. He wasn't disowned, but there is a line of dialogue in which he actually uses the word disowned. He, he uses that word, but it's, you know, it's more daddy and I had a fight than yeah. actual, you know, paperwork. You are literally no longer. Though, though Tywin is a man who makes severe decisions and and sticks with them as we've seen many times so uh so maybe there's something that i'm forgetting and i should reread several books but i i i wouldn't be too focused on that uh right now at least no and i and i think for me like the details of this show fly right over my head in general but i still enjoy it all the same which i think is a mark of the good show like the fact that i didn't know who dantas was right away mm-hmm. but that i could sort of say oh okay there's kind of a guy back then but i could React to Sansa actually being pleased to see somebody, and that's the thing I took away from that particular scene. I think that's where Game of Thrones, you know, it can work as deep as you want it to work, 
but it can still sort of play to the cheap seats. And honestly, I'm out there in the cheap seats. But, you know, that uh, was a scene. That was a great scene with her because, like, we actually saw a different Sansa. We actually saw her smile. We saw her take the gift and she accepted to wear the piece of jewelry. But then we also get the scene in which, she, again, she's moping around. She doesn't want to eat. And she has to remind us, the viewers, about all the torture and hell her family went through and how they all died. And we already know this. And so my only, like, small complaint about that specific scene is there's so many characters and so much going on, we don't need it. Like, we don't need to see her moping around again. We don't need her to remind us that her mom died and Rob died and Ned died. We already know this. That's that's why I don't like the way they are specifically using her character. I think she's taken up some valuable screen time. Well, the thing is, we know this, but we this is the first time we're seeing her since that happened. Correct? Who cares? I mean, are we going to check in with I, I do. Uh, yeah, no, it's her immediate family. It is the only bit of her family that she knows to still be alive. I think it's the point The point you're trying to break in, and I think I was trying to make earlier, is about that we're just watching a bunch of hour-long installments of Game of Thrones. So it's weird for us to think of this, seeing this happen in the season four premiere when it happened in episode nine of season three. But that's only weird in terms of the ways that we consume television. And I think Game of Thrones is playing this weird game where, not a weird game, but it's a different game than what I'm used to, which is in terms of like, eventually there will be this body of episodes. And you can watch this body of episodes however you want. I think it's smart in some ways because it's catering to the ways in which more people are increasingly watching television. So I think you're absolutely right, Kate, in terms of that's the first time we've seen her react to that. I would expect to have seen her react to that in episode 10 of last year, but she didn't because she wasn't in that episode in the yeah. way that Theon and Stannis and all those people were not in this particular episode. The fact yeah, that it was the season premiere was almost incidental. But I think just having her like alongside the river staring out into the water would be, would have been enough. Like, just that one specific scene. That's just me. I'm just saying that I think she's taking up too much screen time. And I think that's like, again, that's why I, I said earlier on, I think the best episodes focus on less characters. And in this specific episode that we get so many characters and I found, find a lot of them were kind of like just there for expository reasons. Like let's, let's remind uh, viewers like who died and who's who and what's happening. And I don't know. So, but again, minor, like, like minor complaints are like, I do really like this episode. Um, so yeah. Uh, and also I, I really like Shay and I just hope we don't get like a whole entire storyline where it's just about how Shay is jealous of her and, and uh, get this like weird love triangle. Like I kind of like Shay and I just did not really like her in this specific episode. I didn't like what they did with her and Tyrion. Like aside from the, the, the scene that you pointed out earlier, earlier Kate with Tyrion and the Prince. Okay. That was a great scene, but the scenes with Tyrion and Shay and Tyrion and Sansa just did not work for me this week. Not going to say anything. Uh, the only thing I'll say about Shay is that they have shifted that character significantly from her personality and her motivations in the book, mm -hmm. uh, in the books. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how that affects other elements. Cause of course the way, you know, with the interconnected interconnectedness of all of the characters, on this show and in this world, if you shift one character, it ends up affecting a much larger, you know, scope of the you know, section that is of the show. So I look forward to seeing how that shift for mm -hmm. her ends up affecting other things over the course of, uh, of, of the rest of the show. Well, that's because you can look ahead because you know what is probably going to happen based on the actual original source material. 
I yes, that yeah. is true. But for yeah. me, it just did not work. And like while I'm watching an episode presently, I just kept on wishing that I was watching. I don't know Jon Snow or Ygritte or I don't know. Well, I do want to move on to them because we haven't really talked about them. But before we do, because I, I, I we've already I, I feel like we're we're pretty much done. Where I think we feel like we've covered most of the uh, King's Landing and and. Uh, the not extreme north and south of this show. But I do want to specifically mention that I'm a big fan of Indira Varma. I, I really liked her on Rome. I really liked her uh, on several other things. So I'm very glad to see her uh, showing up as Alaria Sand. Uh, she's a very, she's always, she always feels very competent, very intelligent and, uh, and very um, resolute when she shows up on, on shows. She's very good at, at those uh, elements of, her performance. I feel like those are threads in many of her performances that I've enjoyed on TV. And so I'm looking forward to how those traits fit so nicely with Alaria. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the cannibals? Like why is cannibalism on Vogue these days? Hannibal, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. Um, I like these new characters. They are menacing. They are cool. They're huge. I want to see more of these characters. Um, this is the, the actual story i'm interested in right now it's Jon snow it's egret it's the army that's approaching it's giant spain um that's what i'm really excited for i hope we see a lot more of these characters throughout season four i just feel like we've already seen so much of king's landing and the lannisters like i kind of want to move away from them for a while and just focus on some of these other characters who i think are incredibly interesting yeah i'm negative interested in the cannibals uh ryan what about you Oh, and the same for me. I'm like, why is Cersei's from 300 showing up, and why is he a cannibal? Um, but I think that's again where where I tend to tune out are scenes that are just we need to pay this off later, and if we don't at least mention it two minutes per episode, we're going you're going to be lost. That's the sort of you know the, the 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 showing of the seams of Game of Thrones, the television show, in the adaptation that keep it from being completely grade A material. For me in particular, this whole we have to spend four or five minutes every episode with everybody. And I think I agree with the point I made earlier with the smaller, the, the fewer characters per episode, the stronger the episode. And sometimes that works in terms of Blackwater, where it's one location, many people, but you at least get the sense they're in close proximity to one another. But then you get to the sort of these episodes where like you're only focusing on two or three main storylines and you can really focus in on those. So. The stuff with the grit and torment and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it just it felt like they were, you know, just checking off a box. They had to deal with it this particular week. And then next week, maybe we're going to get a few more of those type of scenes interspersed with the stuff we really want to talk about. But we know we have to get to this point later with the wildlings and the fens and all that stuff down line. And who are these people that Jon Snow is talking about, this 100,000 that Mance is aligning with? And if I'm right... Kate, the Fens are one of many tribes north of the Wall that are starting to congregate and go under Mance and for the first time have a unified front to attack the West Arrest the rest of Westeros, which is a really hard thing to say, by the way. <laughs> the rest of the uh, the rest of the Westerosi. Yes. <laughs> But that's why I'm interested in these characters because I I'm, I'm I really want to get to see more of the supernatural elements of the series and we don't know much about these characters like uh, now Kate you just kind of ruined my day because now according to you I'm not I shouldn't be looking forward to this because it's not going to be like the greatest like storyline but I was kind of hoping that 
it would be like, I don't know, it'll just be great to watch. Like I like, I, I've always been a big fan of Jon Snow. I like the Night's Watch and I know just the idea of this huge army marching along and with these giants and like these supernatural characters, like I love the politics and I love everything at King's Landing. And I love watching Lannisters, but I just kind of want to see something different this season. Like I didn't want to see like a repeat of season three where we just get to see one more wedding and the Lannisters conniving and scheming. You know what I mean? I want to see something different. So, well, and I didn't say that that storyline isn't interesting to me. I just am not interested in, Oh look, another show has cannibals. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm not saying I'm interested in that specific cannibal. Like I want to see him have a love story or <laughs> form a relationship <laughs> with like Jon Snow or something. I'm just saying like the idea of bringing in like these characters um, I think is kind of like cool. It's just like like you know like I kind of missed the direwolves. Like where is the direwolves? I think there's still at least one alive, right? Yeah, there we should. You know, there are there are several, uh, and uh, there are two that we should be seeing, or th sorry, three we should be seeing on regular rotation. But we're not because you know actual direwolves are difficult to CG. And and so much of this stuff is about the fact that everyone is looking at is is focusing on the wrong thing. And there's a the threat that you're talking about, which is that you know the giants and the White Walkers and all the stuff north of the wall coming down, which is going to obliterate any of these petty squabbles that we've seen on the show. And I get all of that intellectually, but, you know, do I want to watch four seasons of people focusing on the wrong thing? And I get it after a certain point, and I want to get to that real thing. I want to see the giants and the, and the White Walkers and everybody just laying waste to that city. And maybe even with the great budget that Game of Thrones has, and all the resources HBO is expending towards it, maybe we'll never get quite there. But also, maybe the source material never gets there, and it just sort of you know focuses on the the smaller aspects of what's going on. So we'll have to see. Well, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, Ryan, but uh, I'm right there with you on Jon Snow in this episode. And there's there's very few things you can do to make me like a character more than give them a, a jackass to, to to mouth off to, and yeah. uh, they do that here. And as soon as they let you know, they they let Jon Snow have swag and uh, and be experienced and be confident, and that. I don't know that the character has really changed or that the performance has really changed so much as there's a bigger dick for him to, to, you know, mouth off to and to, to, to disrespect. And so, and that, you know, that's way more likable and way more entertaining for me to watch. So if, if this is a start of a new, more confident and uh, less uh, unaware of his privilege, I guess, Jon Snow, then I'm all for it. I want Jon Snow to know something in season four. That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shall we mention, uh, go, go to the south then to wrap things up. Any final thoughts on North of the Wall or the, the Crow, or the, the Night's Watch? Any other thoughts on that part of the world? No. I mean, who was who it that said that he knew he, uh, that Jon Snow wasn't lying because of his time in King's Landing? Was that Master Aemon? All these names here. I'm looking at Sir Alistair Thorne, Sir John O'Slint, and Master Eamon. And I've, I honestly, if you put the three people in a row, I would never get their names right. It's Slint. Slint. Okay. So, I so. Uh, again, the point of which I understood the joke, even if I didn't understand the name. But the idea, and that tied things into King's Landing enough for me in this particular episode to sort of realize that King's Landing is a place that you want to spend as little time as possible because the air itself is probably poisoned at this point. Yep, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, yeah, you know, Slit was the uh, he was made the commander of the the gold coats, the the 
the King's uh, Landing Guard, basically City Watch, and uh, he's useless, and so he got sent up to the to the wall. So he's we're gonna spend a lot. Uh, I don't know if we're gonna how much of the season we're gonna spend there, but anytime he's up there in a scene, he's gonna be being useless. So okay. I, That'll be fun. A good source of comedy. Uh, Another potential source of comedy, uh, a different kind of comedy at least, uh, is down with Danny in in the Marine. And I'm curious what you guys think of the recasting of Dario Naharis. I'm a big fan of Michael Wiseman from uh, Treme. Uh, I especially enjoyed his appearances in the, you know, fewer appearances, but more effective for me in the last season of Treme. What do you guys think of this recasting? And are you excited for what it means for the role? Uh, You know... I can't really comment on the casting because I never really liked the characters to begin with. And I had a problem with the scenes of the revolved around Danny. Um, for starters, like when we get the scene and we see her dragons, okay. Like it's cool to see dragons on game of Thrones, but did we have to be reminded that the dragons can't be tamed? And like, did she have to be reminded that she can't tame her own children, her dragons? Like that kind of dialogue was just not needed. And I don't want to see two guys trying to, win her heart like I, I don't need to see a romance between her and another character that's not something i'm interested in and so that was really disappointing for me i w- i'm very happy with the recasting of dario because when, when the original dario appeared on screen i'm like oh this is every worst dream about game of thrones when everyone thinks about fantasy it's this douche because he looked he looked like he was like the third member of the band nelson from the 80s and i don't remember that maybe i'm dating myself he looked like a hair metal guy he looked like uh, fabio very Fabio and very yeah. like, who is this guy? And I didn't buy it at all. I think that um, basically all of our fears for Jason Momoa, who then turned out to be a really fantastic actor in that role. So how, how do you how do you pronounce this actor's name, Kate? You said before this is Michael Hussman. We I, I Weisman. Okay, fine, that's fine. I'm looking at his name. I'm like, nope, not going to pronounce this <laughs> remotely correctly at all. Um, he had a little bit more elegance to it, and I thought that his sort of quote-unquote you know, flirting with Daenerys with, in terms of the flowers was enough of a – it was written in a way that it could be both, that it wasn't completely – but you're right, the uh, the contest stuff between him and Grey Worm, I could, I could have plenty done without. But I'm very much – as much as I like the Daenerys stuff and the fact that she's going, she has a semi-aspirational stuff, I really need to connect her to the rest of the show sooner rather than later – I don't know what's going to happen. If it happens at the end of season four of Game of Thrones, I would be delighted. I know. They've been marching for, like, ever. And they still have, so like, 160 is... miles to march. At every single mile, there's someone on a cross. So this is the last city, Kate, they have to go to before they come to Westeros in terms of their co-opting of the army. Is that correct? Is that your understanding from the books? Um, or is that a spoiler? All I will say is, uh, like how many expectations, dial them back. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? She's just going to keep marching and marching? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, don't, I, you know. So here's what's going to happen, right? She's there gonna there go, are seven books. What is this? Marine? Is that the name of the city? Marine. Marine. So they're going to get yeah. there and everyone's going to sing Everyone is Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. Is that what's going to happen? All I'm saying is don't expect her to pop up in Westeros. God, this is like how I met the Mother of Dragons. Soon. Oh, my God, in terms of the waiting. <laughs> Keep in mind this that I mean, and, and it's something where, and this isn't about the books. This is about the structure of epics, uh, of epic storytelling. You have, you know, you know, this is a seven novel series, something like that. And uh, right now, this is book four, book five material because those two books take place over the same span. Oh, really? Of time. Really? Yes. Okay. And Weird. so, yes. 
that that's, that's that's where we're at. So there are still two more books that we haven't even started with. And if I were to guess based on epic storytelling, I'm guessing the White Walkers and the dragons are going to be meeting in a giant clash. You know, the frost and the fire are going to be meeting a giant clash at the end of the series, meaning the end of the seventh book. That's my expectation based on the structure of epic storytelling. So you're telling me that season four is book four and five? No, not book four and five. I'm saying that the Daenerys storyline from those two books, those two books take place over the same span of time. And so we're going to have elements from either of those two books. Right now, we're still in book three, by the way. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but we'll see start seeing elements from book three, book four, book five, sort of over the course of these next episodes. Okay. I, I okay sure. I, I um, just want to give a shout out to the statue of Joffrey standing over what was it like a bull with his crossbow? Yeah, the wolf. Yeah, that was awesome. And then we cut to him, and he's standing in the exact same pose, wearing the fabric that he chose out to impress yeah. uh, his his lovely wife to be, and everything. Yes, yeah, so that was a nice little comedic but beat. Do we have any other final thoughts on this episode? Um, I, I worry as much as I like seeing Arya get revenge on Polliver, I worry about Arya very much. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to go. To, you know, it's it's a weird thing to root for somebody, as you pointed out, Kate. Root for somebody who just turned into a murderer. That's maybe that's the best victory we can have at Game of Thrones right now. I need a bit more than that overall. Otherwise, this is just a dire, not a dire wolves, but a dire episode uh, or a dire series. I just need I need that thread of hope, and maybe we won't get it until season seven, whatever Game of Thrones end up ending at. But I need to know. I need to get signs we're going to get there, and I can hold on to that, and that can go on from there. That's why I like Jon Snow's character. Like, I feel like Arya is already a goner. Like, she's already hit the dark side. She's, like, stabbing people in the throat. She doesn't care about a pony anymore. But Jon Snow, he's still got a heart. That's why I really like his character. She liked her pony at the end. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But, you know. <laughs> didn't, she, didn't she steal it, though? She okay. stole it from the guy she killed. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was a jerk. Come on. He was torturing people. I'm sure the pony will be much happier with Arya. Mm-hmm. Is, is she going to name the pony Lamy? <laughs> let's, let's, oh God. Okay, it's clearly when we're naming ponies after unfortunately deceased characters, it's time to wrap up the podcast. Because <laughs> I, I wish that that was like a thing that could only happen once, but with the number of dis- unfortunately deceased characters on this show, you could have an entire, just a fleet, uh, just a stable of, of ponies. True. <laughs> and on that cheery note, uh, thank you, Ryan, so much for coming on to talk with us about the Game of Thrones premiere. Uh, where can our listeners uh, find your work online? Oh, yeah, you can find me at uh, the AV Club, hitfix.com. You also listen to my podcast, Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, the Not Ready for Primetime podcast, and Hollerback, a Justified podcast. And, uh, and Ricky, how about you? On Twitter, sound on site, and of course, it's soundonsite.org. And I'm at the Televerse on Twitter, and uh, you can find my writing and uh, plenty more podcasting over at Sound on Site. So drop us a line, let us know what you th- think of uh, this episode and some of these different casting, and uh, you know, your your 
hopes and fears for the season, I guess I'll say. Uh, thank you again, Ryan, so much for coming on. Uh, next week, we'll be back with uh, episode two of season four, The Lion and the Rose, written by George R. R. Martin, directed by Alex Graves. There's so much fun ahead next week. Uh, looking forward to talking about it already. Until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. They say a thousand slaves died building the Great Pyramid of Marine. And now an army of former slaves is marching to her gates. You can't serve in the King's Guard with one hand. I murdered people so I could be here with you. There's a band of wildlings south of the wall already. Tell your father I'm here. The Lannisters are the only ones who pay their debts.